You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Prop G Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Since the New Zealand terrorist attack, experts have pored over the killer's manifesto and social media presence. They're trying to understand why this man gunned down 50 worshippers in their mosques. It turns out the killer was inspired by a transnational network of online Islamophobes, and that should worry us all. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we're going to dig into this dark world. We want to understand where it came from, how it spreads its ideas across borders, and what, if anything, can be done to deal with it. I'm Zach Beecham, and I'm here as always with Jen Williams and Alex Ward. Hi. Hello. So uh, this is some pretty terrible stuff, but it's not new. It has its origins. I mean, you could go back a really long time, but if we're talking like modern Islamophobic ideology, traces back to 1970s France, right? Yeah. So there's an author in France named Jean Raspail, and he wrote this quite dystopian piece called Camp of the Saints. And what it really did was start this massive panic about, you know, immigrants coming into the West and replacing, so to speak, the centuries-long civilization. Right. I want to be clear. The the book is an envisioning of a Europe in which mass migration overwhelmed traditional European cultures and replaced them with basically a horror show, right? And this was a a fringe thing until – well, it still is a fringe it's thing, very much but a fringe it's thing, yeah. migrated to a large number of people over the course of recent years. And more recently, another French writer, Renaud Camus, came up with the idea of what he called the Great Replacement, uh, where comfortable aspects of life are replaced by new things. That's also the same title as the New Zealand Shooter's Manifesto. When we're talking about new things and comfortable aspects of life, what we are really talking about is how comfortable aspects of white, Christian, European, dominant, hierarchical society in which whites are ascendant are being replaced, this is the argument at least, by new things, meaning new people, new ideas that maybe they see as threatening or that they just think is not uh, something they want to have incorporated into their society they think belongs elsewhere. For for what it's worth, there's an interview with him on Vox.com, which we'll link to, with Kambu, which we'll link to in the show notes. He would disagree with what Jen has just said. Uh, many people would disagree with Camus about his own work. So read the interview, kind of decide for yourself. But Right. But the, the basic premise is that European society is being replaced by the mass influx 
of Muslim migrants. And while Camus himself may insist that, oh no, I'm not saying that these people are dangerous, the inspiration that people have drawn from his work as evidenced by the New Zealand shooter and a, a wide variety of alt-right, Islamophobic literature is that they see this as a threat to European integrity. They see this as the replacement of European society and, and white genocide is the is the fringe phrase that showed up in the New Zealand shooter's manifesto. Right. And you see this idea spread uh, online, through social media, through uh, more fringe media, through even some more mainstream media. Um, you see it in far right corners in the U.S., in Europe, in Australia, in South Africa, the idea of this white genocide. And you saw it here in the U.S. pretty recently uh, in Charlottesville. So those are the far-right white nationalist protesters in Charlottesville who were holding those tiki torches that became so infamous and were chanting, you will not replace us, and then Jews will not replace us. And that kicked off that kind of big confrontation that, that happened in Charlottesville. And you see this same idea kind of popping up in the New Zealand Shooters Manifesto. You see it with Congressman Steve King, who has tweeted about needing to get birth rates for white Christians up, right? The exact quote is, we can't restore our civilization with somebody else's babies. Right, exactly. And, you know, in the New Zealand Shooters Manifesto, he has this entire section really starting off about birth rates, birth rates, birth rates, and how these Muslims, these immigrants are outpacing us having their children. So it's literally about this False fear, I would say, but fear about being replaced. Um, you also saw even Donald Trump, when we're talking about how mainstream this has gotten. Donald Trump has said many things in this kind of vein, but he specifically was tweeting about Syrian refugees coming into the U.S. And he said, we need to stop this. We need to solve this immigration problem. We need to keep out Syrian refugees. Our civilization is at stake. So he's even echoing this kind of sentiment. The point here is not to equate Steve King and Donald Trump and the New Zealand shooter. They're different, but rather to point out that this idea that sort of originated in France in the 1970s uh, has continued to gain power as migration to Western countries, particularly Muslim migration, has continued and escalated, and that this has real power both on the fringe and even in a toned-down way uh, in the electoral political mainstream among radical right and mainstream right politicians. Right. And just a reminder, we, we keep referring to him as the New Zealand shooter because the attacks took place in New Zealand in Christchurch. The shooter himself was a citizen of Australia. And former Australian Prime Minister Kevin Rudd was speaking on NPR Thursday morning, and he was talking about seeing this problem in Australia, which, again, is where this shooter came from, where he lived and grew up and was a citizen of. And he said, you know, we have our own far-right party here called the One Nation Party. And he, he made these connections explicit. He said, we've seen kind of iterations of this same ideology pop up all over Europe and in the United States. He references Breitbart. He says, you see it in places like Breitbart. You see it in UKIP, the UK Independence Party, uh, the party that was really big behind Brexit and made this anti-immigration push the kind of centerpiece of that. He mentioned Alternative for Deutschland, the AFD, kind of far-right party in Germany. So it's not just us in America saying, look, hey, this is the problem that we see. And it's an American thing that totally influenced this guy. Like, you know, this former Australian prime minister is saying, like, look, this is a problem that we have in Australia. It's not just Europe. It's everywhere this ideology has spread, this idea of this replacement. What makes all of this even more scary is that 
as bad as that is, it also motivates killers from the opposite side of the extremist spectrum like jihadists, right? It is creating this feedback loop that in, in all that almost seesaws that if you know white nationalists do this kind of attack like we saw in Christchurch, it can motivate jihadists to commit the kinds of atrocities that they want to commit. Right. And your your mention of a feedback loop is is completely spot on. It's this kind of call and response in a really horrific way. And I don't want to glorify this guy's manifesto, right? But this is something that we deal with um, ourselves in the newsroom trying to figure out how to balance this. But it is probably the clearest window into what this man was thinking and his justification. So it's what we're going to talk about. Right. We have to read it, but you shouldn't. Right. Um, So in this guy's manifesto, he specifically talks about this point of radicalization, right? This point, he doesn't call it radicalization, I don't think, but he talks about this point that changed everything for him. And he refers specifically to this attack that was in Sweden that was carried out, uh, it turns out, by an immigrant from Uzbekistan. He drove a truck into a crowd of people, essentially, and killed several people, including a, a young nine-year-old girl, a white girl, it happens to be, in Sweden. This immigrant apparently claimed to have ties or was inspired by ISIS. Whether he actually had any ties whatsoever remains to be you know, seen. But he essentially said he was inspired by, by ISIS, right, to carry out this terror attack. He carries out this attack kills this little girl who's white in Sweden, then this other guy becomes radicalized, sees that and says, see, we need to keep these Muslim immigrants out. So then he carries out a terror attack against Muslims in mosques praying. Now, the vast, vast, vast majority of Muslims like myself and many, many other billions of people will not respond to this with violence, right? You've already seen this response of people coming together and denouncing violence and stuff. But you will see, Alex, like you said, extremists on the other side say, see, this is why we need to fight back, right? We need to fight back against these people who hate Islam and who are trying to replace us, who are trying to destroy Islam. It's a perfect excuse. Right. It's the same shit. It's the same thing on both sides. It's the same kind of extreme fear mongering and excuse for hate that just perpetuates this cycle. And it's really tragic because both sides don't see they're fueling each other. And we're already seeing this happening, right? This isn't hypothetical in the sense that, well, an attack is. But in ISIS propaganda and what you see from other jihadist groups, there's a good piece in the Daily Beast documenting this that we'll link to in the show notes. Uh, They're already saying that the attack in New Zealand proves their point about the West being hostile to Islam and why violence is morally justified in Western societies and overall in response to this kind of oppression of Muslims. So they're trying to keep the feedback loop going already on these social media platforms. And there's a decent chance that it works, right, if they're allowed to keep doing this on both sides. So then the question becomes, what, if anything, can be done to break this cycle. And I'm genuinely unsure, right? I I just, I have no idea. I'll be honest, I'm incredibly pessimistic about this. You know, the ubiquity and the immediacy of social media is, is such that this kind of propaganda, these kinds of arguments, they can just be spread at lightning speed and, and reach anybody really at any time. And, and the New Zealand attack was perfectly curated for this kind of social media moment, getting the video online, getting the manifesto online. And no matter what the likes of YouTube or Reddit or like all these kinds of social media platforms tried to do, it just kept spreading. Like, you, you know, Jen, I know you put in a lot of effort to try to get the video taken down. You know, we, we both sadly watched it, but like there was a reason why we wanted that video to be gone because of how horrific it was. And just to make sh- yeah. sure that everybody knows what we're talking about, the, the video we're referring to is, uh, and again, 
please do not watch it. I, I say this as like a human, not as like someone trying to censor anything. It's not worth watching it. But the video we're referring to is the shooter in Christchurch basically live streamed the entire attack. And it's fucking gruesome and horrific. And yeah, Alex, you and I were were up late covering the the shooting, you know, kind of as it happened, as it was still going on. And uh, as soon as this video kind of became known about on social media, the shooter, you know, live streamed it. It, it then went on to YouTube. I and, and several other other people tried to get the video taken down and pulled from YouTube. So, you know, basically just going on and reporting it and saying you need to take this down through YouTube's mechanism. And to their credit, YouTube had it down within about an hour. The problem is it was too late even then because by the time it was taken down, it already existed in a million other places. People had already downloaded it. And so when YouTube pulled it, within seconds, new ones were popping up elsewhere. And so it was basically like whack-a-mole. Like you couldn't stop it. And that's the problem. And, you know, going back to kind of the jihadist tie-in there, right? Alex, you said this was perfectly curated for the social media kind of era and to get it to go, you know, viral, his his message, his, his manifesto, his video. ISIS did a lot of groundwork for that, yeah. right? Like, I don't know if he specifically studied how ISIS disseminates its propaganda, but these things are tools that terrorist groups and extremists and individuals learn from each other, right? It's also this like tactical feedback loop where people are like, look, if you make videos, right? ISIS videos also look a lot like video games in a lot of the ways. And so did this video. And so you can see that it's not just even the ideology or like the extremists and the hate. It's also just the way they learn to disseminate stuff that is this feedback loop. And again, it goes to the problem of how the fuck do you stop that? So part of the problem is that this guy linked to his manifesto on 8chan, which is a sort of extremist web forum for trolls and online racists. And so the live stream was there immediately before Reddit knew about it, which allowed them to create copies of it and disseminate it really quickly. And, and this is not in one sense, a new problem, right? Ever since the printing press and the mass availability of information, people have been able to easily distribute extremist literature. But now with the speed to which all of these different things can be read, consumed, copied, and archived, it seems nearly impossible to stop these things, these kinds of ideas from flourishing among a very small fringe, which can then infect and spread into the mainstream. We're going to take a break now, and when we come back, we will be fielding some more of your Brexit questions. Vacations can be tricky. You already know how to book flights and hotels, but now the only thing you're missing is, you know, the actual travel experience. Because is it really a vacation if you're just sitting around like you would at home? You need a tool to get the most out of your time away. That's where Viator steps in. You can book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who already been on the experiences you're considering, so you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. What does it take to be an entrepreneur and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Prop G Podcast and an entrepreneur myself. 
Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship of Prof G Pod, special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prof G Pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, welcome back. We asked you for your Brexit questions, and we got so many insightful responses. So thanks again, really. We really appreciate all the time and thought that went into writing these questions, and we're trying to answer them as many as we can and as best we can. Well, today we're going to focus on sort of a broad theme, which is Brexit's impact outside of England and what people outside of London and the surrounding areas think about it. And so we're going to start uh, with a question from Jason Hill and Belton Myers. Uh, they both asked about the coherency of the UK in a world after Brexit. Could all the various different countries that make up the United Kingdom stick together? Here's Belton's take on the question. Early on, there was a lot of talk that a no-deal Brexit could lead to the breakup of the United Kingdom with Scotland and Northern Ireland staying in the EU. How would that work and is it possible now? Well, we've talked a bit about Northern Ireland on the show before, so I, I want to focus on Scotland today. And uh, that is a very interesting issue, right? Because it's in the not-so-distant past, Scotland voted to leave the UK even before Brexit. Right. So Scotland held a referendum on whether to leave the UK, on whether to declare independence and become their own sovereign country back in 2014. And that vote failed, but it only failed by 10 points. It was really close. Right. So the referendum did fail that time. But the Brexit referendum fared very differently in Scotland. It was not close. Scotland, unlike England and Wales, voted overwhelmingly to stay in the EU. Uh, they did this because they're relatively left-wing uh, compared to the rest of the UK and because they're relatively pro-European in their overall orientation. Those two things are pretty well tied together in British politics. They're not entirely tied together. So then fears of another referendum on Scottish independence were reignited immediately after the 2016 Brexit referendum. Right? It didn't happen right away, but people were concerned then that Scotland might just up and leave. Uh, and that's still a live concern. We're already seeing parts of the uh, SNP, which is like Scotland's main political party, pushing for independence. And, and there may be a vote even after, let's say, Brexit happens. And so this is a, a quite serious situation that because Scotland and having been there quite a bit can definitely confirm the more left and pro-European side of, of, of that area, um, having been there many times, you can imagine them being like, well, we don't want any part of this at all. Uh, and that could overcome that 10-point margin that we saw uh, earlier. Right. It makes sense, right? Like, well, we didn't quite have independence because everything was going fine. We were all part of the EU. But now the, this UK that we're part of isn't going to be an EU, and it's also uh, happens to be a giant clusterfuck trying to get out of it. Why the hell would you want to stay a part of that, right? Like it makes sense why the pro-independence people would also be able to use this as a lever to kind of push people more to their side. So the, the reason why we haven't had a second referendum in Scotland yet is that Nicola Sturgeon, the head of the SNP, has said that she wants to hold off until they figure out what the Brexit deal Smart. is, right? Which other people in her party, as Alex suggested earlier, disagree with, including the former head of the party, Alex Salmon, right? There's some dispute about whether or not the time is right to push for one. But if there's a no-deal Brexit, as you two were just suggesting, the chances of the UK actually breaking up and Scotland's rejoining the EU and leaving the UK are, are not low. It's also like if the argument was like, 
maybe not right now. Let's just wait until we finally get a final answer on what's happening with Brexit. Well, now Theresa May, UK prime minister, is going to the EU and asking for an extension. And it's maybe going to be short. It's maybe going to be long. We don't even know. It could be up to like a two-year extension that they're like hoping that Brexit just goes away. So if you're Scotland and you're like just sitting there like, what, do you just keep waiting for two years and just go, I don't know, I guess we'll just hang out. One super quick important thing here. Uh, all of the UK's nukes are in Scotland. So if Scotland were to leave the UK, uh, you have no nukes. And then that gets to the second part of Belton's question, which is how this would work. And the answer is nobody knows. No nobody knows what Scottish independence would look like in a world where Britain's leaving the EU and Scotland is staying in. It's it's just it's just bonkers. That's a short answer to every Brexit question. Nobody no, knows. No, but nobody knows. <laughs> nobody knows. Which okay. brings us <laughs> something we do actually know a little bit about. Right, which is the rest of the EU's approach to Brexit. Uh, Karen Aston asked us, about how the Europeans are thinking about this. And I quote, if you could talk about how the rest of Europe is handling Brexit, the impact it will have on their trade, especially countries with ports close to the UK and, of course, Ireland. Well, it's a good question. And by all accounts, when it comes to the practicalities, the EU is much more prepared for a no-deal outcome than the UK and would be a lot less hurt economically. But they would be hurt. Like, There's no doubt that trade with the UK is, is helpful for the overall EU economy and having it as a member is useful for that. And, and that's shaping the EU's approach to the negotiations. Yeah. So again, as we've talked about before, the fact of the single market in the EU makes it so that trade between countries is very simple. It's free. And now if the UK were to leave, it would get to put up tariffs and other sort of other trade barriers that would make trade with the UK more expensive. And so not many people in Europe really want that, right? They don't want their goods and, and other kinds of materials to be more expensive coming from the UK. But the other cost that the EU is also worried about is how hard it is to actually leave the EU if you wanted to. And so right now you have European countries weighing that is like, what is the economic cost that could, of course, hurt the entire union versus how much pain can we inflict on a country wanting to leave? And right now it seems like the pain on wanting to leave is winning out because the EU has really no incentive to make it easy on the UK to Brexit simply because they don't want other countries to exit. Right. I mean, they're trying to keep this entire, well, union unified yep. <laughs> together, right? And just a reminder, like the whole point of the EU was not an economic project, really. It was a peace project, right? Mast is an economic project. Right, exactly. Yeah. It was basically meant to integrate all of these economies for all of these countries who had gone to war so many times for so long. And the idea was that by integrating their economies, it would make it a lot harder for them to go to war because if you get your steel from this guy over there in that country, you're probably not going to want to go to war because how the fuck will you build your tanks if you get your steel from that guy? So that's basically the idea. And so there is a lot of incentive in the EU to keep that block together. And you have to remember, the UK wasn't the only one considering this. We used to talk about Italexit and Grexit and, you know, Italy and Greece and all these other countries considering it. But now, because of the way the EU has managed this and made it so fucking painful and just a disaster for the UK, a lot of countries who were previously thinking about doing this are like, maybe we shouldn't. Like, literally, there's a Swedish party that was founded on the idea of getting Sweden out of the EU. And the leader recently came out and was like, yeah, about that. Uh, I think it might actually be a better idea if we just, I don't know, maybe stayed in the EU and worked within the system to change it. Like, he's sort of like, JK, we're not doing that. That is a fucking nightmare. That looks hard. It's not just how the EU managed it, right? It's the entire 
project of Brexiting is so logistically complicated and so difficult for the Brits to manage uh, without even the EU doing anything but insisting on like sort of fair terms for them on the deal that that it makes it really look ugly to every other country. And so from the EU's point of view, the best thing might be a protracted negotiation and then Britain's like, we can't make this work. We're staying. Right. And that proves that like you can't leave the EU because it would destroy your economy and totally screw over your international prestige. Anyway, we'll see about how this goes when the EU decides on Theresa May's extension. Right. Because right. like we said, Alex, you pointed out this really great kind of dichotomy where like there are people, individual leaders in the European Union who are like, yeah, but I don't want to be the guy that says no to her extension and makes the UK crash out of the EU and cause all this economic damage, not just to the UK, but also to my country potentially. Right. So like they also have some incentive to be like, I don't want to be that guy. Right. But at the same time, they have this collective incentive to not do that. So all 27 EU member states have to vote to agree to give Theresa May this extension on the Brexit deadline. Uh, we're going to see whether they vote to do that or not. We, we shall see. And that will throw everything into chaos one way or the other, and we won't know. So again, we don't know, and, and we'll see. Because the current deadline is when? March 29th. That's so soon. March 29th. Everybody, so, put it down in your calendars. Yes. Look, look we're going <laughs> to... After that, uh, you know... Crossing off exercise, we're going to leave you guys. I want to thank our producer this week, Bird Pinkerton. I want to thank other people who have assisted on this podcast production, Jeffrey Geld, Jillian Weinberger. We encourage you to rate and subscribe and review to Worldly. And if you have any more questions about Brexit or anything else, feel free uh, to send us an email at worldly at vox.com. What does it take to be an entrepreneur, and how is it changing in our ever-evolving business landscape? This is Scott Galloway, host of the Property Podcast, and an entrepreneur myself. Right now, we've got a special three-part series running all about the future of entrepreneurship. We're answering your questions on work-life balance, how to raise capital for your business, and more. Because when you're an entrepreneur, it's always important to look ahead at what's to come. So tune in to the Future of Entrepreneurship, a Profji Pod special sponsored by Mercury. You can find it on the Prop G pod feed or wherever you get your podcasts.